0: And so we continue this morning in the book of Revelation, where I hope we're getting a taste this morning. We're in Revelation 11 this morning. I hope we are realizing that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. It, it, from start to finish, it is all about Jesus. Revelation, John is fixing our gaze upon the glory of Christ, upon the sufficiency of Christ, uh, uh, upon the sovereignty of Christ, upon the sufficiency of Christ. For the church in every situation that they're facing in this life. And I was rereading the book of Revelation this week, and I was reminded all the way back in verse 4 of chapter 1 that the point of this book is grace and peace to the church who is being persecuted by the Roman Empire, by the Jewish religious system, who are seeing people die for their faith who are going through hardships and sufferings in this life. This book is about looking to Jesus because there is where the only place you find grace and peace. Revelation, despite how it's probably been presented to us for most of our lives, was not given to us to satisfy our carnal curiosities about the future. It just wasn't. The book is meant for the church today. To help us cultivate a worldview where we can see the world, our lives, the church, in the broader context of what God is eternally doing in the world. What He's always intended to do the world. And so that we might think rightly about these things. And the key to understanding this worldview of the church in the world is understanding what we saw last week in chapter 10. Remember the angel of the covenant? who I commend to you is Christ Himself straddling the globe. You've got to have that picture in order to know this grace and peace through all this. King Jesus straddling the globe, the globe controlling all things, ruling over the church, ruling over all the governments of the world, ruling the affairs of the man. That's what chapter 10 was. And chapter 10 closed with, take the scroll, take all, eat it, digest it. Don't just know it up here right here. Because only then can you know grace and peace in your life and the grace and peace to go out into this world and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to a world who is under the restrained judgment of Christ. Better repent now before the next trumpet blows. We continue in this interlude that began between the 6th and 7th trumpet that began in chapter 10 this morning. We're in chapter 11. Let's read together. John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That's how my week has been. Revelation is an unusual book. We know that without saying. And chapter 11, if we are not diligent to stay on the tracks of what have come before this, we will roll right off the tracks and go into some foreign land where we can't make heads or tails of it. But we'll try. We will darn sure try to explain this using every bit of imagination we can come up with. We've got to stay on the tracks here. Chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, it is not only the revelation passed through Jesus Christ, but it is the revelation about Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is Christ unveiling himself. He is the subject of revelation. It's the unveiling of our King in glory. Everything else we have is looking unto Jesus in various components of his pre-incarnate life, in his earthly ministry, and the ongoing ministry of Christ through his apostles and the epistles. Revelation is unique; it gives us a perspective of our King that we we don't see in this fullness, but here. And, and this really is going back to chapter one. This vision of Christ exalted is a gift from the Trinity. Because we're told all the way back in chapter 1, you may remember, it's the Father who gives the Son the right to reveal Himself in His exaltation to His people. It is the Father who gives the Son the right to do this. And it's the Holy Spirit who takes the glory of the exalted Christ on His throne in this time between the ascension of Christ and His resurrection. It's the Holy Spirit who takes these things and brings them to bear upon our lives and upon our hearts. Why? Chapter 1 So that we, the church, might receive grace and peace. What a blessed gift this is. Written for the seven churches of Asia Minor, because they themselves, in their devotion to Christ, they're not perfect. They've struggled. There's a couple of churches who are on the right track, but they're not perfect. I mean, they they have the temptations that some of the other churches to fall away the temptation to apostatize, to turn away from Christ, to compromise with the world, to bring false teaching about Christ into the church. All of these things are realities in the life of the church in the time between the ascension of Christ and His return. And and they were going on in John's day, and they're still going on in our day, and they will continue to go on. But grace and peace for the church to keep their vision, their focus, the centrality of church upon Jesus Christ is there and the book of Revelation is God's triune means of grace and to really keep us on track. Revelation really is, to a certain extent, I say this sort of tongue all we need. I'm not saying now we can forsake everything that came before, it, but everything that came before it has been working up to this point. And now we have this vision of him. This is where our hope is. Not in the process that got him here. It is in the crucified, resurrected, ascended Christ who's there, who's done it all. And this really is what the church needs to see Christ in this way. Now, one of the challenges we have in this book of of Revelation is understanding that Revelation does not read like Genesis. It doesn't read like Hebrews. It doesn't read like the Gospels. It doesn't read like those letters, like I just talked about Paul's letter to the Romans. It is something completely altogether different. It's called apocalyptic literature. And if we try to read it, like we read Genesis, Hebrews, Romans, any of those New Testament epistles, we are going to find ourselves in some very strange places. Apocalyptic literature is a form of writing. We've said this from the beginning. That unveils things not through through logic, not through a chronology of events, but through pictures, through symbols. And they're scattered, but it's these pictures we bring together. And I say this before we get into Revelation 11, because as we come to Revelation 11, if we read this passage literally, when we're talking about the temple, and when we're talking about the two witnesses, I think we're going to miss the picture. I think we're going to miss the grace and peace that God has intended for the church today. There are the seven churches then, Covenant life Church today, and the church that will continue on until King Jesus returns. And this does not undermine the literacy or the literalness of the Bible. Apocalyptic literature is something different. And we have to be faithful with it. We're looking at spiritual realities here in Revelation 11 that are painted for us in pictures and in sounds. And it does not divert from everything we've seen before. Christ is sovereign. Christ is straddling the globe. He is triumphant in His death, resurrection, and ascension. And His people down here, this is what we've seen, for all of the struggles they're going through in this world, they are kept safe by the sovereign one. These down here, there are temptations in these churches to apostatize, to compromise with the world, to begin to believe things in addition to Christ, Christ plus these things that will divert them away. But for Christ's true church, true believers, they will not apostatize. They will not turn away. They will not compromise because they've been given new life, new heart. They've been born again and they're not perfect but it's Christ who holds on to them. That's the same story here in Revelation chapter 11. Same story we've been seeing, just in a different picture, a different image. And if we can keep that moving forward, we can stay on the tracks. We can stay on the rails. We come to chapter 11, verse 1. John is giving a measuring rod with a strange command, right? He's given a yardstick, if you will. A measuring stick. And he says, measure the interior parts of the temple. When you think about the temple, think about the Old Testament temple structure. You had the temple proper. And then you had the general... part of the temple, which included courtyards and and areas outside of the temple proper, the the holy of holies, the, the main place where only certain people could go. That was the temple proper. But there were other broad general areas around courtyards where people could go. Keep that image in mind because here John is told to measure the interior parts of the temple, the temple proper, the one where the people are. And we're told here he's given us some, the, the, the part where, the, uh, where the, the sanctuary is, where the altar is, where the people are. And he goes on to say, now there's there's the sanctuary, you've got the outer courts, you've got the holy city. There's kind of scaling out. But what I want you to measure is the inner court. What I want you to measure is the temple proper. Uh, what, what, how do we make sense of this biblically? We don't want to go into just imagination how do we make sense of this biblically? Well, if we've understood the structure of the book of Revelation, we know that we actually have a running commentary on the book of Revelation in the book of Revelation, right? Think about the structure. We're looking at one period of time from the ascension of Jesus Christ until his resurrection, and we're looking at it cyclically, over and over and over again, seven passes. And then we're looking again at again another seven passes. We're not looking at, but every time we pass, it's drawing our attention to something that maybe wasn't emphasized previously. So, in that sense, we can look at this interlude here in uh, Revelation 10 and 11. And all we have to do is go back to the interlude that came between the sixth and seventh seal. And is there anything helpful there that might help us to understand? What's going on? We're, we're taking the same paths, same interlude, same period of time, same thing that happened there. What was going on there that might help us to understand what's going on here? So let's go back. Remember chapter 6 closed with the sixth seal, final judgment? Who can stand? Remember, every type of person crying for the, the mountains to fall upon them. Better to do that than to face the wrath of Almighty Jesus. Who can stand in that final judgment? Chapter 7 is the theological interlude that answers that question. In chapter 7, John is given another vision. A vision that's in two parts. A vision where it starts God sending his angels to mark or to seal his people. The church. First, we see the sealing in the church militant on earth. And then at the end of chapter 7, we see that vision come up here, look up here. There's a, another vision of the sealed, the church triumphant. Who can stand? Chapter 7 is the answer. Those who are sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Those are the only ones, when King Jesus comes back in wrath, who can survive, who can stand in that final judgment. And the point there is, for the church Right now, the time has not yet come for the end. You're still in the world. There's all kinds of trouble and persecution and trials and tribulation that you're going through. And God is telling I'm still at work in that. I'm at work in you. I'm in work through you. I'm using you. Remember, remember that, the, the, the martyr's cry out, how much longer? And what was his? He says, more of you still have to die. Why? What's that for? Because I'm using you as a Witness into the world around you that rejects me, that some, by grace, might repent. I'm still using you. I'm at work in you. But know, when that sixth seal unfolds, and it's bad, you will stand because of Christ, because of His blood. That sealing keeps you. You will not fall away. You will not apostatize. You will not be destroyed, though there's all kinds of these temptations around you in your church, in your seven churches, and in every church in every age. So we come to the, sixth, the interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpet, we're essentially looking at the exact same thing. A different picture, a different camera angle. Remember our imagery of the football field? You're all looking at the same game, but every camera angle is emphasizing something different. Well, this is just a different camera angle on that interlude. And the idea here is the people in the sanctuary, they're marked. They're numbered, measured them. Measure them, they're numbered. These are the protected ones. The outer courts are not measured, are not marked, they're not numbered. And they will be trampled and handed over to the Gentiles. What's the point? While God is constantly, every day, at work in His church, nourishing it, feeding it, growing it, using it in the world that rejects Christ, using it as a witness to point people to Jesus Christ. That's part of our responsibility in the world today. We're protected. It may not feel that way. There are times when maybe our faith is challenged, but there's times where we go through dry spirits, uh, places where even we think maybe, go back to the to, to he, book of Hebrews. What was Hebrews about? A people who were truly converted but who were contemplating turning away from Christ. That was a very real temptation. And the author of Hebrews says, what are you going to turn to? What's better than Christ? And he calibrates their hearts and says, the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ cling to him, even through the darkest of days. And when that happens, do you and I as the church know that not because of how strong we are, but because of our king who straddles the globe and how sovereign he is and he knows his church. They've been given to him by the Father. They're in his hand. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Know that you will not apostatize. You will not be destroyed. There will be suffering. We're going to see that with the two witnesses here in just a moment. He's not promising an easy life. But you will not be overcome. Grace and peace. Now, why is there only one part measured? This is something we've got to know here. It is not enough for us to look at this and say, well, listen, okay, we have a part that's numbered, they're marked, they're safe, and a group that's not. Okay, I think I get it now. No. That's a warning. That's a warning to you and I. We need to understand this inner sanctuary, we need to understand the symbolism of the temple. In the Old Testament, The temple was a glorious, ornate building designed by God himself. It was a place where God said he would meet with his people. If you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. And again, we talked about the structure had two parts, the temple proper and then the the general large area. where Anyone could gather and worship. In the temple proper, only certain people could go, right? The priest, the high priest, only certain people could go there. But in the general broader area, anybody can go. Where's the temple today? It's been destroyed. Twice. You see, the temple has never been about the temple. The building has never been about the building. If we read the Old Testament, we understand that the temple is symbolic or representative of a greater reality, a true and better temple. It was Jesus who said about his own death and resurrection, destroy this temple and it will be Raised up again, rebuilt in three days. Now, what were they thinking about? They were thinking about a literal temple. What was Jesus talking about? That whole temple thing. Where do you go to meet with God? That's a foreshadowing. Where do New Testament believers go to meet with God? You come to Jesus Christ. The temple was always a foreshadowing, a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His church. Keep in mind, the church is, Christ is the head of His church. We, looking unto Jesus, are being conformed to his likeness, becoming like him. He's the head. The temple has always been a picture of Christ and his church. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Going back to the the message of of the gospel." Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Cornerstone of what? The temple. Not a physical building. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing together into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's very clear that the temple has always been a picture, the inner sanctuary has always been a picture of the church. So the temple we see here that's being measured, if we are being, we're, we're in the last book of the Bible. The expectation is we take everything we've learned from Genesis and the unfolding of it all the way through and how the message has revealed itself. Oh, it, it's a symbol. It finds its fullness in Christ. Now we bring that to apl- application here with that we would know he's talking not so much about a building. He's using that as a symbol of Christ and his church. The temple that's being measured here is symbolic of the true people of God, the marked, the sealed people of God. Going back to the interlude of chapter seven, and there are people attached to the temple, to the church, but they're not the true people on the inner in the inner sanctuary. They're people who are in some way attached but not marked. We know this to be true. The New Testament speaks about this, that when we talk about the church, we can label it one of two ways, the visible church and the invisible church. We talk about the visible church being what we can see. This would be a visible church. We see every Lord's Day. We come together. We see one another. Externally, we pray. Externally, we pray. We worship externally. We Catechism questions externally. We preach externally. We listen externally. We'll take communion. And there will be other visible churches this day, at this very moment, doing the exact same thing. And here's what the Bible tells us. There are people who participate in those external things week after week after week. They're not true believers. The visible church is distinguished from The invisible church, the one we can't see. Well, who sees that one? God himself. Who's looking not at the externals, but he's looking at the heart. Remember, Jesus walks among his churches. And those churches that he confronts to repent, they're singing, they're preaching. Catechizing is is an old thing. They're maybe doing some catechism teaching. But he's walking around. Let me taste of RJ's heart. Let me see what's really going on here. Let me taste of Samantha's heart. Let me taste of Jake's heart. Man, he's he's up there. Uh, The words are on fire, but let me taste what's going on here. Is it really going on here? And the reality here is those who are being measured is the invisible church, the true church. John's attention is being drawn to this inner sanctuary, the true church. These are the ones who are protected. These are the ones who are secured. Those who are attached to the temple, who are active in the temple, there's no promise of security for them. There's no promise they won't apostatize. My goodness, they're not even Christian. But everyone associated in the inner sanctuary, that's the true church. What's the warning here? Visible covenant life church. Not everyone who claims to be born again is born again. Those who just play at church, they play church, they make church about them instead of what the true church is about, you're not protected. Those are not secure. And they will be handed over to the Gentiles and trampled in judgment. I think because of the gravity of what John is being pointed to, we, we have to pay attention here. What, well, how would I know? What are the distinguishing marks of a true believer, of being in the inner sanctuary? And I think everyone in this room could probably throw out a very general, well, you got to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and all that is true. But again, it is possible to externally talk about those things and no gravity in what from this text can we say, how might we distinguish a true believer? Well, three things come from the text. Number one, they're in the inner sanctuary, the inner sanctuary. Some people think that being a Christian is as simple as going to church on Sunday. It's as simple as going and being there, being in a, in a building, in a place where you gather and you do Christian things. You pray, you sing, you preach, you catechize, you do, do all these different things. But for you to enter truly into the sanctuary of God, into the inner dwelling of his living temple, where he dwells, that's not somewhere you physically go. He must come dwell in you. He must come and fill you are the temple, your heart with his presence. Religion is not about you coming here. It's not about you coming to God. It's about God coming to you. And the question for all of us, myself included, is am I in the sanctuary? Not because you're in this building today and we've done Christian things, but am I in the sanctuary because I know God indwells me. I know God is at work in me, pointing me to him. No, not perfect. That's a big claim. But that's what the inner sanctuary is. Secondly, how do I know I'm distinguished as a true believer? The inner sanctuary also, notice that in the inner sanctuary, there's an altar there. This is a distinguishing mark. Religious people at the temple are not religious because they're there. Any more than we're religious because we sang the songs, or you went through the catechism with us this morning, or you participated in our prayer meeting, or you're listening this morning. Guess what? Everybody around the temple proper was doing those things as well. Right? Psalms of Ascent, everyone's making their way to Jerusalem to where everybody's doing those things. What's different about the inner sanctuary is that there is an altar there. A bloody altar, right in the middle of the temple. What's an altar for? It's for sacrifice. It's for blood. The only way For us to be in the inner sanctuary, the only way for God to indwell a heart like mine that is depraved, that is rebellious, that hates Jesus, the only way for him to indwell me is for there to be an altar in that heart, a bloody altar that says all of that has been paid for through the sacrifice of another. The blood of goats won't do it. The blood of bulls won't do it. The sacrificial system won't do it. It's the death of Jesus Christ crucified that is that bloody altar that is necessary for us to be true believers. That's what Paul said all throughout the New Testament. Do not put confidence in the flesh. Do not put confidence in how moral you are, how righteous you are, how theological you are, how you think highly of church, this, that, or the other. Boast in the cross. Boast in that bloody altar. Humble yourself and know that is your only hope. Without that, we're on the outside of the temple. A third description of a distinguishing mark of a true believer here is they're worshiping. They're worshiping. Genuinely. They're worshiping God. We all know what it is, and maybe we've done it this morning. It is possible to worship for me. It is possible to give and do it for yourself, hoping that God may bless you for having done it. That's not about God, that's about you. It's possible to be praying and it be all about you. God, I want this. I want, you're just my butler. My almighty, all powerful butler. But it's all it's not about your glory. It's not about your purposes, it's about me. It's possible to. To, to be doing all these things religious and yet be completely preoccupied with yourself and your wants and your desires. And you can come to church. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking broadly. Yes, I'm speaking to this congregation. But it is possible for a professing believer to go to church and suppose I'm going for God. And yet they get there and grumpies all get out because it's all about them. See, when a unbeliever meets the beautiful, glorious Savior, all of a sudden, their preoccupations turn and twist. What used to be all about them, now they see in him their all in all, everything. And it becomes all about him. And this is the great heart of a true believer. It's all about Christ. None of us are perfect in that. I'm not trying to paint that picture. I'm asking, think about those among those seven churches. There were a couple that he didn't have a complaint against and they're not perfect. He's just saying, you're on the right track. Might that be true of your heart this morning? I'm not perfect, but I'm on the right track. I do the indwelling of God in my soul is changing and conforming me. There is an altar there. My hope is in Christ. Man, I don't apply it perfectly. Sometimes my flesh comes over and I I hope in my flesh and I hope in my wants and my desires, but But fundamentally, is there that that altar there? And fundamentally, is there the trajectory of worship? It's all about him. Those are what distinguishes these who are being measured, counted, numbered. These are the marked ones. These are the sealed ones from those who were in the outer courts. Well, that's just some of the distinguishing marks. There's more. But I think from the text, we're safe landing there. And John here is being told, take a rod, measure the inner temple, where the altar is. Don't measure the courtyards. Leave that out. They're not the true people of God. See, what God is most concerned about for his church is that we know we belong to him. There is a promise of grace and peace, a protection of security. You will not turn away. You will not apostatize. He will keep you to the very end but you better make sure you belong to that inner sanctuary. Because there are multitudes in the outer court where they're attached to the temple and they're going to church and they're doing all the things. And yet on that day, the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never had that heart for me. I never indwelt you. I didn't know you. If I'm indwelling you, I know you and you know me. morning Christ isn't talking about some future date he's talking about us today looking into our heart can we be counted among these so the inner is measured speaking of the invisible church of Jesus Christ and those who are not they're in grave danger what about these two witnesses and I'm I'm going to say this when it comes to these two witnesses and I'm not going to spend as much time with this as I did the first There are a lot of smart people who have thoughts on this that I completely disagree with, (laughs) and that's okay. There's other really smart people who I disagree with, but they're on the right track. I had to land somewhere, and I'm not sure I'm right. I know it's not talking about a literal two people. Now, you will may completely disagree, and that is okay. That's where I am, I'm there. Everything in this book has been symbolic, My goodness, even these two people, it talks about fire coming. If you're going to say they're literal, you've got to say everything about them is literal. And among those who want to take, these are two literal people. They never, when it comes to the things that it says about them, they don't take those literally. I think everything here has, there's a symbolism here that is in keeping with everything that's come before. But among those who have different views of the symbolism, people I admire and respect, differing views, I don't know. But here's where I've landed. And you can differ with me, and we will be good friends going forward. Let's look at these two witnesses. Where in verse 3 we're told, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I think the only way to even begin a conversation about what's going on here, you've got to go back to the previous interlude you got to go back to the previous commentary on, Revelation, on the interlude between the 6th and 7th judgment. You've got to go back and ask, all right, what can I glean from that to bring over here? And again, what was going on there? The promise of Christ's protection for his sealed church, his marked church by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we're looking at the same thing here, same message, just a different picture, different camera angle. Christ's protection over his church. These two witnesses rather than trying to identify them literally, and we've, we've, we're familiar with all the possibilities, I think they're symbolic. Symbolic not only of the church, which the promise here is the protection of the church, but of the ministry of the church. Symbolic of the ministry of the church. Now, let me try to defend that biblically. and then I, It's OK if, you, if you're going to go to lunch and call me crazy. Um, The key to understanding this language is everything that's come before it. The book of Revelation and the entire Genesis to Jude that's come before it. Um, I think what we have here is the symbolism within the life of the church, which is promised to be protected. There is grace and peace. The ministry of the church, particularly the centrality, the primacy of preaching, of the ministry of the word of God in the life of the church is the promised means of grace to sustain the church in this period of time of persecution, suffering, tribulation going on in and around the world until Jesus returns. There's a promise that they're safe. But this is not just a, 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 a majestic, just, it's just going to happen. The God who ordains the ends also ordains the means. And I think he's upholding here the ministry, the centrality, the primacy of preaching in the life of the church as being the means of grace to protect his church. Now, the key to understanding this is the symbolic language we see in the Old Testament. Because, verse 4, the identity of these two witnesses is symbolically revealed. Look at what it says. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. If you're going to be literal, if you're going to take this literally, you have to take it all literally. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Well, before we just start trying to identify who these are, let's put on our Bible hat. Let's put on some of these things that were just described. They sound vaguely familiar. These are things I've seen before in other witnesses, prophets, preachers. Can you think of Old Testament characters who reflect this language, this identifying language that we see here, beginning in verse 4 through verse 6? In verse 4, we have, I commend to you Zechariah. He is the one who was involved in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, with two olive trees. You remember the oil? from those olive trees were feeding into the two lampstands to keep it burning bright. It was Zechariah's preaching ministry. We can continue on in verse 5. I commend you, this sounds an awful lot like Jeremiah. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consume their foes. Go spend some time in Jeremiah chapter 5 this afternoon. And subsequent passages. Then you have an allusion to, in verse 6, I commend to you, Elijah. The power to shut up the sky? That no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying? We've seen that before. That's the prophetic ministry of Elijah. And then in verse 6, they have powers over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. My goodness, who is that? Moses. What do these four men have in common? Zechariah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses. These were all prophets or preachers, ministers of the word of God, thus saith the Lord in their day. And when you take them collectively, here's the commonality. All of them ministered in a very difficult location, a very difficult climate, a very difficult context. The word of God being proclaimed by Moses in Egypt? In all of these situations, these were faithful preachers of the day who preached, we're going to come back to it in sackcloth, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, that's the the two olive trees, filtering into the lampstands, which are the churches. And how did the people of God prevail in the Old Testament? In Egypt. How did they prevail under the reign of King Ahab? How did they prevail when they were going to get so many different enemies going on around them? Enemies to the the people of God. It was through the centrality and the primacy of the preaching of these prophets. Not their own wisdom. Go back and read. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. This This is the grace and peace to us in our difficulty in Egypt, in our difficult context. To get us through few key points here to, I think, defend this. They're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is somewhat unfamiliar to us today, but the idea here has to do with a a minister clothed in sackcloth It speaks to the seriousness of the task, the seriousness of of the message he preaches. Preaching has always been a very serious task. There's gravity to it. Preaching is the proclamation of the character of God. And he's jealous for that glory. What did he do to Nadab and Abihu who just in a moment, in an instant, didn't glorify him? And they, he burned them with fire. Dead, dead, gone. It's, it's proclaiming the, the gravity of our sin against a God that holy. It's the excellencies of Christ. Not just some surface level, and I don't mean this, I don't, I don't mean to undermine it, but We have such low views of Christ, right views of Christ, true. But there's so much more to love, to treasure, to know that he's given to us. And preaching is God's means of bringing those things out so that we can cling to him. And and this is extremely serious work. That's why we can't trivialize preaching. That's why we can't, you know, uh, can we do something other than this? We'd rather listen to somebody other than you. I, I get that. Or, or whoever, I don't, I don't mean me just, yes, me, but whoever. Maybe there's a better way. People don't want to hear preaching today. Be that as it may, go back to Genesis 1. I content, commend God himself is preaching into the darkness. Let there be light. And he's setting the model for how he accomplishes his purpose, his voice. But he uses the preachers, thus saith the Lord. Just as he did in Genesis 1, he does all the way to end. The sackcloth speaks of the seriousness of the task, the seriousness of the message against this glorious God. We have sinned. Repent. Look to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. There is no other way. Another key point to consider, why two witnesses? I used to think when Jesus sent them out two by two, it was for emotional support. I remember in seminary, that was what I was told. And God bless that teacher. It was, I mean, I'm sure that was a help for emotional support, but it goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. In a court of law, in order for something to come out, it had to be supported by two witnesses. Something of gravity, something in a court, it took two witnesses as a stamp on it, that it's true, that it's valid, that it's real. And likewise, treason against the glory of God, you have sinned against this one, that's a valid message. And the two witnesses are here. You better listen. Christ is the only way. You better listen. The two witnesses are, are symbol, excuse me, symbolizing the, uh, the validity, uh, the potency, if you will, of the message. And then thirdly, notice they minister for 1,260 days. It's not an accident. How many days are the nations being outside the temple court, right? Not in the How many Months. Are they being trampled by the Gentiles? Verse 2, 42 months. Multiply that times 30 days. That's 1,260 days. Again, we're we're not splitting hairs here. Symbolic. The idea here is the same length of time that God's judgment is being placed upon a people who reject him. The ministry of the word is going on. These two things are happening. To strengthen the church, to comfort the people church, to bring peace to the church, to bring hope to the church. Why? Because the church is going on with all this going on around it. And the word of God we read from Paul is intended to make us whole, make us complete. The underlying idea is we're not complete. We're not yet whole. We will be. We still got struggles. We still got, I mean, we just saw that this morning in, in Psalm 127. Solomon himself said, yeah, man, I'll look in the mirror and I can't do things on my own. Preaching is the means. Yes, look to Christ. Look to him. Own up and look to Christ. You see, the ministry of the word has always been central to the life of the church. God's means of grace to help Christians own up to the reality of their life, their own struggles, their own hardships, and the sufficiency of Christ and to wed those two things together to repent to live for him to look to him. And because of our nature as needy children, that message needs to be repeated over and over and over and and God graciously has called us together no less than let's come together once 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 each week. And the the, 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 the preach the same message to our hearts, the glories of Christ. And the preaching ministry, what's happening here with these two witnesses? Is it That's going on, no problems? No, they're in a day where there's all kinds of problems. Notice these two preachers, they preach for a certain time. But it doesn't last forever. Verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, again, they, it's symbolic. Using two people here, representative of the preaching ministry of the word. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Keep in mind, this is not talking about just one specific event. This is talking about a period of time from the ascension of Christ until his return. The preaching ministry, we have 42 months symbolic during this time, right? Persecution, struggle, hardship, God's judgment, 1,260 days, same period of time. The preaching is going on. And the preaching ministry and its blessing and effectiveness will look like this some days it's a blessing. Some, and I mean some periods, some seasons, it's a blessing at other times. It appears to return void. And we can look back in church history and we can recognize places where God has blessed the preaching ministry of the word. In the ministries and time periods of men like Augustine, John Chrysostom, Martin Luther, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And tens of thousands of preachers you've never heard of. And they're not in the history books. But my goodness, they showed up every Lord's Day and they just proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus Christ. They preached faithfully. But then there are also those periods in church history where men of that type pass away. And what's interesting is in line with verse 7, the beast rising up, again symbolic, We go through periods where oftentimes the preaching, well, it's gotten off track. It's gotten off track from what God intended. And there's a sense in which the preaching of the glory of God, the excellencies of Christ, the sinfulness of man has been killed and left for dead in the streets. The ministry of the word left for dead. In a city that is symbolically called what? Sodom, Egypt, and the place where the Lord was crucified. Those are symbolic. Why? Sodom. That's how we want to live. We put preaching to death that tells us we can't live however we want to live. Or Egypt. We we don't want this king. We want this king. And if you're going to keep shouting to us, proclaiming to us, This king will put you to death and leave leave you in the streets. Or the place where the Lord was crucified, Jerusalem. You preach Christ, it's left for dead in the streets. And we can go back through church history and find periods of this. Great blessing and then great decline in preaching. Great blessing and great decline. Here's the point. Though these witnesses, symbolic of the ministry of the word, die, they're, left, they're not buried. <laughs> they're not buried. It's not finally done. God, is kind of like the vision of the, uh, the dry bones in Ezekiel. Verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. We go through periods of decline where Preaching is man-centered, it is legalistic, it is the message of the Pharisees, and you can go all through church history. And I would commend to you the period of the 18th and 19th century, uh, excuse me, uh, 19th and 20th century in our own nation, in America. You go prior to that, you had Jonathan Edwards, you had George Whitfield, you had the Wesleys preaching the glories, the excellencies of God, Jonathan Edwards. And then what happened in the 19th and 20th century? How do we get so far away from what we're trying to return to now? The ministry of the word was put to death. But they weren't buried. For three and a half days, then God raised up these witnesses, the ministry of the word again. And he continued the work. And it's his means of grace for his church to keep them from apostatizing. How else do we keep from turning away from Jesus? Listen, I can't speak for you. It's a temptation in my own heart, and I'm the one each Lord's Day, each as I'm in preparation for the week, who's trying to formulate sermons that are urging you to keep on to Jesus. If it wasn't for the preaching of the word and God using it as a means, how else would we keep from apostatizing or destroying ourselves? Well, the Lord... Raises up the preaching of his word. And we call that revival. When preaching revives and it returns to what God intended it to be, God centered, Christ exalting, God does a powerful work in the lives of his people. But it's like this. I was reading this week just some biographies, Spurgeon himself on his deathbed. You know Spurgeon, you know of his reputation for preaching. The paragon of preachers, he's called. And there's a reason why he gets that title. But on his deathbed, he talks about people look at my preaching today and they call me a fuddy duddy. Why? Who would say this? Because the culture around him had changed. There were other preachers who would come in and say, Man, Spurgeon, he preaches for hours. And it's all this high and mighty stuff up here. Man, we've got a better way. And it tickled their ears. And all of a sudden, they no longer had the appetite for Spurgeon. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest preacher in American history. Fired from his own church by his own church members. Why? It reached a point to where his message wasn't palatable to them anymore. The ministry of the word, it does this. But the promise is. The Lord is constantly at work in this world until he returns again, using the preaching of the word as a means of grace. And so we pray. Lord, bless the preaching of the word. We pray for this preacher and that preacher and the preaching of the word. That I may not like it, but Lord, help them to do what you called them to do. And the promise here is even the resurrection of preaching is a foreshadowing of a resurrection of a greater day when the Lord will raise up not just the preaching and the ministry of the word as a means of grace to his people, he will raise up his people, call them to himself. And that's our hope. That's the warning of the passage and the promise. God is still at work in the preaching of the word.